podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby. And it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites with his teeth. So welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin's Take. This is podcast number... 107 with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. And this one coming to you on a Tuesday as always, available in all the normal places. And the reason I mention that is because over the last week, we have added a another string to our formidable media bow, which is that we are, we are now on YouTube. Uh, we've been talking about it for a while. We decided that it was time to stop talking about it uh, and actually do it. So the podcast is staying as is. That will come out on Tuesdays, like I said. And excerpts from the podcast will migrate over to the YouTube channel. Darren Reese, our, our tech guru and producer, has started doing that. So there's plenty of content. What we're also going to do on a Thursday, and the first one came out last week, last Thursday or thereabouts, is bring you a kind of weekly news podcast that me and Matt are going to do. 20 or 25 minutes just talking about just current affairs, which have really kind of caught our eyes. So if you could make your way over there and subscribe to the channel, that'd be great. You know, it'll take a little while to build, but we're in no particular rush. Um, yeah, it will come out on Thursdays. Last week, um, I accidentally put it out on Tuesday. Uh, Darren had done all the work he needed to do, had, had, had done everything for me, had idiot proofed it as best he possibly could. He didn't know factor in just the caliber of idiot that he was dealing with. And somehow I managed to swoop in at the last minute and fuck it up. Um, but it is supposed to come out on Thursdays. Anyway, on to today's episode. And this is one that we are going to call the art of the deal because we talk about the machinations around big fights a lot because it's just so fascinating, the negotiations, the ins and the outs of it. But we've never really addressed it head on what actually has to happen to make a really big fight. We think we may have one brewing at the moment between Fury and Joshua. If you believe what you read, what we're told, then we could have some news fairly soon. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. You never really know until uh, until the, the, the signature is there, until they both signed and it's actually going to happen. But But what do you need to make fights like that where neither side is going to want to back down, where they both feel that they're the A side? Who gets paid what? Where's it going to be? Who's going to broadcast it? Who gets called to the ring first or second? Who gets introduced first or second in the ring? How big's the ring? What gloves do they wear? There are all sorts of things that you have to take into account. And it can be very, very laborious. Now, we thought who would be the best man for this job. And uh, and one name sprang to mind immediately because we need someone here who was worn or who was in possession of a number of boxing hats. We needed a boxing sophisticate who could stride into his walk-in wardrobe and pick up any number of hats. Uh, and uh, today's gentleman has got several. He's got a manager's hat. He's got a promoter's hat. He's got a TV exec's hat. He's got a Harvard Law hat. He's got an International Boxing Hall of Fame hat. He's even got, and this is probably one of those old Paddy's Day Guinness drinking hats, a I once promoted Matt Macklin hat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's Lou DeBella. Lou, first of all, how are you? I'm, I'm well. It's good to be with you, gentlemen. So, And by the way, I know the real reason you want me on. It's because I don't give a fuck about what I say. So <laughs> you know you're going to get unfiltered from me. So, you know. Well, that's well, that's a good too. well, that too. <laughs> I said, well, that too. 
Yeah, I can't lie. That, that That is one of the many reasons which makes you the ideal man, the ideal man for Macklin to take, because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, Lou, but, but Matthew is somewhat reticent when it comes to telling stories about himself and his own career, which... Uh, which is a source of frustration at times. So you could, you could possibly help us out with that. Um, I'm happy to fill in any blanks I can. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> looking at his face now. as <laughs> a man paralyzed by fear. Um, but, so, so onto today's subject, it's, I mean, it's a big subject, obviously. Um, first of all, you've been at this a while. First of all, in your time doing this, has it become harder or easier for the big fights to get over the line? It's never been harder than it is right now, ever. And and I actually think the reason, I've said this many times, I'm going to repeat myself to some people who've heard me speak before, but, you know, in in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, um, exclusive deals were rarer. Um, you know, networks and platforms, back then it was basically television networks, there weren't streaming services, but networks didn't do exclusive deals with one promoter. Now, that was a little bit different in the UK. There have been exclusive deals with some of the networks in the UK preceding that popularity in the United States. But when you have different avenues of exclusivity to different services with different sets of fighters fighting on those platforms, it, 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 it adds an incredibly difficult element into negotiations which is the fact that the people who ultimately are the bank, the media service, you know, the media outlets, the, the uh, platform, the network, the streaming service, um, they don't really want to spend a lot of money developing a fighter to hand them to a competitor. And therefore, many of the biggest fights face the impediment of platforms that aren't actually working toward the biggest fights because those biggest fights would affect their exclusivity. So, you know, it was always, you know, I've seen deals fall apart over stupidity. I've seen deals fall apart over, over ego and, and naming the fight and uh, you know, crazy stuff, the size of the ring, what kind of gloves you use, all, all those kinds of things, you know, can become impediments to making a fight. However, if that's the impediment and the two fighters really want to fight each other and there's a platform that that's what wants to pay for the event and the promoters believe there's business sense to the fight, those issues never, ever, 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 except in a few cases of utter insanity, those issues generally didn't stop fights from happening. But these, these exclusive fights, when did you ever hear before fighters saying publicly, Oh yeah, I'd like to fight him, but he fights on the other side of the street, so it's probably not going to happen. I mean, that's frustrating to me as a as a boxing fan and a promoter and a business person. Just imagine how it is to the average fan or the casual fan. I mean, could you imagine in a Premier League, you know, uh, you know, Man U's not going to fight Chelsea because they're on different sides of the street, or, or in the National Football League, or in Major League Baseball, or the NHL, or even tennis or golf? Or I mean, it's stupid. But it's it's the business paradigm of boxing today. You know, the the PBC road and the ESPN Aram road and the zone road, you know, the sky road to some degree, you know, or, or uh, BTE. I mean, all these different roads 
it's making it much more difficult for the big fights to happen. He said, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk about Joshua and, and, and Fury, and I believe that that fight will happen. I do believe that there's, you know, particularly a positive it's going to happen when things open up and you can do a crowd. It may even happen before you can do a full crowd. But that one, despite the fact that that, Fu- that Fury fights on the ESPN road and Joshua on Sky and DAZN, um, there's just too much money there. It's too big a fight not to happen. Um, the, both fighters want to fight desperately, I believe, at this point. Um, I don't think their promoters are going to be an impediment. And I think with some jockeying, um, you know, that fight will get made. So, I mean, that's a good example because it's, it would just be such a huge fight. Um, I, I won't keep using their names because you're not on the inside of that one. But, but with a fight of that kind of scale, I guess it's not the same every time around. But what, what generally happens to set the ball rolling? There'll be a bit of people who put out feelers in the media. There'll be some kind of fencing about we want it. Maybe they don't. The other team will come back and say, no, we definitely want it. Maybe it's them who don't. I mean, how does it, how, how does it, how does it, how do you get past the foreplay and into the action? Basically? You know, I, I, I think a lot of the foreplay is bullshit, honestly. And I, and I think sometimes, you know, when you see a lot of talking in the press or announcements that you intuitively know, just because you have a brain or premature, you know, Eddie's the king of this. I love it. You know, like Eddie's a piece of work, but Eddie loves to like get out there and, 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 and uh, throw out, a, you know, some excitement and, and create some talk. Um, but a, a, a lot of the time when you're premature and throwing stuff out there, it's not at all a symbol or a signal that a fight is getting close. See, I, I've always believed that when a fight is really going to happen, it's not negotiated. You know, the press and the media, it always comes into a negotiation. Generally, there's always some element of stuff leaking out and, oh, we have this one issue or whatever. But, but when you're really negotiating through the media, you're not really negotiating. And, and, and the key example I'll give was all of the, the years of the sparring over Joshua and Deontay Wilder, which, you know, I don't really necessarily believe um, – anyone wanted to make. And, and the only point was at the point at which I think the zone and Joshua and Eddie really wanted to make the fight, the point at which the zone made a big offer to Wilder, everything fell apart. Um, but that usually is because someone or the other doesn't want to do the fight. That fight falling apart when it did. And at the moment in time where it fell apart, it would have absolutely been the biggest fight on the planet. Um, it fell apart, honestly, because there were there were two avenues. There was the zone and PBC, and Wilder was a poster child, undefeated heavyweight champion, a, a poster child for premier boxing champions. Um, Joshua was the conquering British hero and 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 the number one athlete in Great Britain, undefeated, and and um, it would have been immense. But I don't think either. I mean, the zone wanted the fight. In fact, the zone put their money where their mouth was. They offered an incredible deal. Um, but, you know, PBC didn't want to lose control of Wilder or lose Wilder, you know, on their platforms, on Showtime, Fox, etc. So uh, it fell apart because both sides didn't want it And at that moment. And honestly... That is the ultimate element you need to make a deal in boxing. 
you need the fighters to want to fight each other, and you need the business people doing the negotiating to want to make a deal. Because it's very easy to negotiate knowing you don't want to make a deal. Very easy to blow up a deal. You know, it's much easier to blow up a deal than it is to make one. Making a deal innately, making a deal, Matt, involves compromise and, and give and take or whatever. Blowing up a deal can be done a million different ways. You know, if you if you like can say, I don't know, doing a deal and was say chessboard and you got a heavyweight champion of the world and he's like a queen on the chessboard. And while you've got that queen, you can move these pieces and you can leverage and you can negotiate hard. But if you lose that queen, all of a sudden you're in a weaker position. So maybe they don't want to do a certain fight because they don't want to risk losing their key pieces. That that's kind of how it is a little bit. Yeah, that is that, that is kind of how it is. But you know, there's another element and it's under estimated and it's one of the sad things about boxing's tendency to shoot itself in the foot when you delay a big fight you never know what wrench is going to come in you know it's funny when when jerrell miller jerrell miller wasn't going to beat aj he didn't have the dedication um he had a lot of ability but i don't think he had the dedication and, and he turned out to be dirty and the fight got canceled as soon as they, 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 they put Andy Ruiz into that fight, I thought AJ would win, but I knew that it was going to be a more difficult fight. I'm not going to tell you I expected that to be the ultimate wrench, but it was. What mm. happened right there? AJ lost. Mm. So there was only one fight AJ needed to fight then. It was a rematch with Ruiz. So all talk of the bigger fight went away, and also the undefeated record of AJ went away. You're never going to have the super fight with two undefeated fighters between AJ and 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 Wilder, who neither one of them who is undefeated any longer. You're not going to have, and you're not going to have an undefeated fight with Fury and AJ. Though at this point in time, I actually think the Fury and AJ fight is absolutely at the moment that it should be made. Mm. Okay, but you got to look also. Look at Pacquiao Mayweather. The fight happened well after its time. You know, now it did huge business, and a lot of people got rich, but it was also a shit fight. You know, it, it was, and it was partially a shit fight because they waited too long. I don't think it had the same excitement, did it, Lou? If that yeah. had happened, because people had, had seven years of coitus interruptus, like, oh yeah, they're going to fight, they're going to fight. No, they're not going to fight. Oh, they're going to fight, they're going to fight. No, they're not going to fight. And that went on for year after year after year after year after year. And and by the time it happened, it was like okay. And then honestly, the fight didn't even live up to. I mean. I think people's expectations were lower, but the fight didn't live up to the lowest of expectations. You know, it simply, it, it was just a, you know, it's sort of a, a, a glorified sparring session for Floyd. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! So, in terms of 
making one of these mega fights and let's say we've got two fighters and this seems to be the case with 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 Tyson and Anthony who both want it that there, there is definitely a will there they both want it and let's say the business people are amenable uh, and we've got that scenario that, that you outlined that there is a will there and therefore hopefully there will be a way what what are the first things that need to be to be done is it is it always money or is it broadcast or is it location is it is it all of those three at the same time um location's generally not the first thing um who's going to broadcast or how it's going to be telecast broadcast pay-per-viewed streamed that that at, at this moment in time may be the biggest first step you need to take is to figure out well who's go, who's going to what's going to be the platform or how are the platforms going to be shared which I think in the discussion of Joshua and AJ, I do think that Eddie, look, Eddie's a sophisticated guy in this business. His dad is, they've been around this forever. They know what they're doing. Um, Frank and Aram are, are, you know, OGs, you know, to use that term, are, are, are original gangsters of the sport. They, they, they know the lay of the land and they, they realize that there's going to have to be compromise and give and take. And, and, and you're going to see that fight when it happens. In my view, you're going to see it on, probably on sky you're going to see it on the zone in a number of territories and i'm guessing you're going to see it on pay-per-view uh you know sky pay-per-view in the uk and and, and on on a u.s pay-per-view also but it's going to be a a a joining and crossing over of platforms to allow that fight to happen but i think that that batch back like that backdrop has already been my gut tells me they're already moving along in those discussions that they know how they could make it. Um, but that's the first step. It's to figure out, can we, you know, figure out the platform or platforms it's going to be on or figure out how those platforms are going to be shared. Um, Luke, is, it both quite, to, is it quite complicated when you've got, so, you've got a streaming service, which is t- charging two quid a month or whatever. And then you've got a, another channel wants to do it on pay-per-view and you know that, that i'd imagine that can get quite messy no it, it is messy and it's complicated but look you have eddie has to deal with his own eddie also has to deal with sky aj's deal is with sky so you know pretty simply in the uk that's going to be a sky pay-per-view right with respect to the us um yeah it's an impediment i mean like i believe the fight's going to happen on uk time it, it should it's two uk champions so uh, you know, I think it'll happen on UK time, but it will be on pay-per-view in the States, in my view, unless the zone steps up and buys out US pay-per-view, you know, because the fact that it's US afternoon pay-per-view maybe makes the fight more affordable, but maybe the zone could buy that if they wanted to in the US. I tend to believe it will go pay-per-view, but the zone now is really a global app and, and, and they've changed their whole business orientation i believe the zone will wind up the streaming service for that event in a lot of the world so they're going to be multiple players but you know what that cuts both ways because there's also going to be a tremendous amount of u.s publicity a tremendous amount of sky publicity probably a tremendous amount of the zone publicity and you're going to have all these entities working to make this fight as big as it possibly can be um you know i i i think that a lot of the necessary elements are in place to make a deal happen there. I know that Eddie and, and Aram and, and, uh, and, 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 and Frank, I know there have been discussions uh, on the fight. I'm sure that they're continuing. Um, I do think there's a realization by 
by Aram and, and Eddie and, and, and Frank that, that uh, it would be insane not to make that fight when it's presently as big as it is. Um, and I think both fighters really want it. And I also think a lot of the stuff that happened in the wake of Fury and, um, and Wilder, uh, Wilder's poor performance, Fury beating the living bejesus out of him, and, uh, and all of the controversy that then followed, I think it, it really singularly focused um, Fury on, on AJ. I think Fury's whole orientation is on getting that fight done. And AJ's a smart kid. I mean, he's, a, he's I think he's a decent business guy, a fighter as a business person. I think he's a smart kid. I think he understands how immense that fight is right now. And I also think both fighters believe in themselves, which is a recipe for a good fight too. You know, so I think that all the elements are there to make a deal. I, I personally don't think, frankly, the fight should happen until we're back to more normal times. That fight, I you want to be able to elbow the guy next to you. You want to be able to go scream and yell in a room full of uh, a stadium full of 50,000 people or a arena with 30,000 or 20,000 people. You don't, you know, I, I, yeah, I want to see the fight anyway. And, and uh, I, I'm not going to be unhappy if it happens in, uh, you know, in the United Arab, Arab Emirates with a limited crowd, but that's not how that fight should happen in my view. I mean, I think that fight should happen in a raucous, crazy, accessible environment so it, it, you just led me on to exactly what i was going to go to to ask you next in terms of it being determined where a fight is going to be uh, and we are in different times at the moment of course but let's just talk about it in terms of there being a crowd available which would mean that we would have to to wait but just so it's more in the context of how boxing has always been other than this last year, um, and hopefully it's not going to last too much longer. But how? Uh, what decides where it is then? Is it quite simple? Money. Who- Green, lettuce, money. That's what determines where it's going to be. Um, look, if if there's if 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 shake your booty from from some you know Arab nation wants to put up a hundred million dollar site fee. It's going to happen there, even if he wants it only in front of his family. I mean, that's just reality. Um, from a sport, the, the good of the sport, uh, from a standpoint of, of, and I don't want to say fair play, but I do want to say fair play because when you have the two biggest heavy, look, other than Lennox Lewis, these are the two most significant heavyweights in the history of the UK. And, and they're at the top of their game at the same moment in time. The idea that that fight wouldn't take place in Britain is insane to me. It's insane to me. And and I would hope that, that the reason I'm saying I'd hope it would wait, you're not necessarily going to get the same money from the UK, even in, even with 50,000 people in a soccer stadium, than you would get um, from a, a very de, you know desirous uh, UAE or Saudi Arabia or Qatar or whatever. You know, you, you, you likely could get more money from some, you know, uh, benefactor that, that has a, a, a real interest in bringing a big event to their country. Um, but from the standpoint of, of sport, you have to want to see that in the UK, I think. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose as well, Lou, you know, maybe it doesn't quite hit the same number as what 
like so for example, a Saudi Arabia could throw as a site fee. But if it does 90,000 at Wembley, it's going to cushion the blow. It's still going to bring in a lot of revenue. 100%. I, I, also, I agree with that, that totally. I also believe this. I really believe this. The fight is bigger spectacle and bigger in the UK. And that will translate to increased television money, increased interest from subscribers who, are, who, are, who will subscribe to a streaming service, um, which is obviously the, the, the zone you know, goal and a goal of streaming services. Uh, I think the pay-per-view numbers will be higher if the event takes place in Britain than the, if, the, if the event takes place in the Arab world. Um, so I do think that, and, and 90,000 people, the reason I said you need the crowds again, because 90,000 people at Wembley for a fight of that magnitude is going to generate a whole lot of money in its own right. You know, um, so I, 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 I'm hoping, I'm hoping for the fight. Interestingly, I'm not so much rooting for the fight in the next few months. I'm rooting for the fight as soon as we can open up Wembley to everybody. Yeah. I mean, off, away from that fight, coming down a few levels. And, and by the way, be- by the way, I used to go to every big fight. I mean, my love is no longer pure. I mean, anyone who knows me knows I'm a little bit jaded on boxing these days. And 31 years in it is a long time to get smacked around. Um, but I would fly. Like, if, if everything's normal, I got my vaccine and things are back to normal, I'm getting on an airplane and I'm coming to that fight. You know, because that's that's a Super Bowl of our sport. That's as good as it gets, you know, and I wouldn't want to miss it. Yeah, I can't, I can't think off the top of my head of a, a bigger event than, than how I imagine that would be. You know, and also, so, so just in the same kind of spirit of thing, but down a few levels, for example, just to give an example to people listening that don't know the business so well. For you to put a show on, Lou, at the theatre at Madison Square Garden, which is going to cost you a lot of money to rent that out. The hotels in New York are expensive and really expensive, depending on the time of year. Or you can go to somewhere like Atlantic City. You get a site fee, I guess. You get a discount on the rooms. And, you know, in America, when, when there's a show on, you've got guys flying in from all over. You're generally in town the week of a fight. You've got to do your medicals, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, seven nights in a hotel per DMs, expenses, you know, it adds up, doesn't it? Incredibly expensive. So if you're getting the deal... It's about... it's Matt, the easiest thing all the time is to take a guarantee, is to let someone buy out your gate, whether it's a casino in Atlantic City or a casino in Connecticut or Las Vegas. um, The easiest thing is to do that. there's, There's not the same pressure on you to sell tickets, but it's also not the same incentive to promote. And sometimes the easiest thing isn't the best thing because if you're able to sell out the big room at Madison Square Garden or for a fight that's not quite as big, if you're able to sell out the theater at the garden, which you fought at and you know is a beautiful venue, if you're able to sell those out, then you can handle the hotel rooms and the, the per diems and the high costs of, of promoting in, 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 in New York City. New York City becomes an impossible place to promote. The Garden, Barclays are impossible places to promote in a pandemic without full occupancy. And right now, frankly, New York is completely shut down still. Like, I can't do a thing. You know, I've been taking a lot of lip from a lot of my fighters, and and I've kept a lot of my fighters busy, but that's by hustling and doing deals with Eddie and Golden Boy and Aram and Al, who have bubbles to their platforms. But... I, I am not legally allowed to do anything right now in New York. And you can't 
even do a 25% audience in a big venue in New York. You can't do boxing in New York right now. Um, I think when we come back, though, I think there's going to be a lot of, of, I think the public, as soon as it's safe, is going to want to, is going to be running to go back to the way things used to be, to be able to scream and yell and watch a great fight card. And I think there will be a renewed interest. But I think your point in terms of deal, the make, you know, the making of a deal, the point about whether you're going to a casino or you're going, look, hometowns, there is more excitement, interest, uh, energy generally than going to a casino town that's neutral, right? But for the, the business element of it, paying the higher purse, the promoter taking less risk, the safer way is to get a guarantee. But it's often not the best way. Hey, everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. So all of these things, of course, speak to speak to the money side of it, where, where you go for it, as you said, the, whether you take the site fee or whether you look to promote it, ticket sales, TV obviously has a big say in how much money the fight's going to make, how big it's going to be. So with all that kind of in mind, do you wait until all of that is done before you can say to the fighters, okay, this is what you will get paid? And then with regards to what they get paid, how does that work do they do they get a certain guarantee and then past a certain point they go to pay-per-view sales or, or how does it work well you know on a pay-per-view event or a major major event there generally is some kind of a revenue split between the promoter and and uh, in this case i'm going to consider the you know pbc to be promoted by al even though he's not technically a promoter but but i i think it would be the a a um a revenue split worked out between the promoter and the fighter. Um, but promoters do business very different ways. Like um, Matt knows this cause he's done business with me, but I, I I'm almost always on a revenue split basis. And I generally basically go to the manager and the fighter and say, here's what's on the table. And here's what I think is fair for you. And here's what I think is fair for me. And then you wind up usually arguing a little bit between the manager, the fighter and yourself, and then you make a fair deal. A lot of promoters simply never have never go through that 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 kind of process. Now, if the fighter's making enough money sometimes, because the promoter they're working with has a huge economic backing and he doesn't he doesn't show his cards, but he's giving the fighter enough money to satisfy the fighter, that works for the fighter's interests. But promoters do business in different ways, and an awful lot of them aren't so transparent. Many of them are. And I think we've we're evolving to a point that the fighters in boxing at the highest levels are astute enough to know that it's important for them to know what's in the pot and how much of it they're getting. But there are still an awful lot of promoters that, uh, that make a guarantee to the fighter. And that's that. But Lou, did that not, did that not change a little bit with the Muhammad Ali act? Didn't it become kind of law that there had to be a more transparency around the splits? Yeah, it became a law, but it's a, a law that nobody's enforcing. Like they put a law into effect, and no one's ever enforced that law. And and the fighter is the only one that can bring an action against 
under the Ali Act against a promoter or a manager. And there have been very few brought by fighters, maybe one or two in the U.S. since the law was enacted. The other thing, there's a technicality with the Ali Act, which is, you know, there's Ali Act reporting. And, and you, you know, the idea is you give the Ali Act statement to your fighter to sign, to say, I know that I made this and I know that my promoter got that. Now with the, who's really paying the money though? Now it's the streaming service or the, it's ESPN or PBC or, or uh, zone. But it's the promoter that has the arrangement with the network that's doing the Ali Act disclosure. So what's going on in that level between the promoter and the streaming service or the TV? Who knows? It's not disclosed. It's not explained to the fighter. The other thing is, if you give an Ali Act disclosure in the dressing room an hour after the fight, the fuck difference does it make? Like, what does it do? <laughs> you know, um, I'm not saying I presented paperwork to the fighter before the fights generally, but I, I, I you know, when there's an offer from a network, I, the fighter and the manager know what I'm getting paid, you know, on, on, on a major event where, where the fighter is an A-side particularly. You'll, like, you'll, you know, the fighter will know, okay, here's what uh, the zone is, uh, you know, here's what the zone is providing through Eddie or, or Golden Boy. Here's what uh, uh, I'm being offered by ESPN. Here's what's being offered by Fox or Showtime or whatever, and then you sit there and, and, and basically you have, you're, you're on at least a, a relatively equivalent ground of knowledge, you know? But, there's, but technically, there's not a legal requirement in writing that says you have to present information to the fighter before he signs the contract. Now, that's generally how I do business. I'm not the only one that does business that way. You know, I'm... Uh, I think there are other promoters also that 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 may not often do business that way, but with respect to a certain fighters, have to. I'm guessing that that AJ gets an, a whole lot of disclosure from Matchroom and Eddie because he's that important and significant, you know, to British boxing and to their business. Um, but it, but but I guess the real answer is depends on who you're doing business with. So Matt, when you were fighting, how what kind of different deals did you did you work on? Were you generally a kind of uh, a guaranteed fee, or did you roll the dice and take more of a, a percentage? Um, do you remember when we talked to Caller about this? He, he he was talking about the fight he did between the rematch between Kessler and Froch, and it was on box office on Sky Box Office, the first time box office had been back for three years. Of course, no one really knows how well it's going to do, uh, and Kessler took a flat fee. And of course, the pay-per-view did well, did really well. And I think Frotch, I'm guessing, I think Frotch might have taken um, the per kind of percentage. And he said that Kessler to this day, every time he sees him, every now and again, after a few beers, he'll try and, he'll try and get out of Canada how much money he actually made on on that fight. So like, like Lou says, there are, you know, it's, it's, uh, you've got to, how on top of it all were you? Yeah, well, like, like Callie Sauerland said that time, he does it similar to say how Frank Warren does. So when I turned pro with Frank Warren, it was a three-year contract. You know, I'm doing four-round fights. I'm 19 years old, I'm doing six-rounders, eight-rounders. He's investing in me. The, 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 what he's paying me for those purses, I was being 
massively overpaid though I wasn't bringing anything to those cards let's say but I was a prospect and he believed in where I was going to be in three or four years time so he was losing it was an investment do you know what I mean but then the, the, what happens then is when you get up there I, I'm playing poker with someone who's holding all the cards I don't know what's in the pot let's say now this didn't happen with me because you know I had a last and I ended up going a different route but let, I'll give you an example say let's say Prince Nassim Hamed, let's say Ricky Hatton, Frank promotes them. He's overpaying them at four round level, six round level, eight round level. Where everyone's happy. We're all, you know, we're getting paid a lot of money for what it is, let's say. All of a sudden, but then once you get up there and you're world champion and you're packing out stadiums and you're a pay-per-view star, you want to know what's in the pot. You don't want to, you don't want to be going up from a million to 1.2 and 1.2 to 1.4 and 1.4 to 1.6. You're like, well, you know, is the ten million in the pot? Is the five million? Is the fifteen? What you know? I'm, See, I'm that, that, of- that's a very that, that's a great point, Matt. And 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 I think that. Um, but here's part of the thing: you, you made it very like you, very few fighters will go out there and say, "I didn't bring shit to the table in the beginning, and the promoter was overpaying for me." But basically, promoters always overpay. Uh, you know, except in the rarest of circumstances: a heavyweight who won an Olympic gold medal, network TV, or 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 a streaming service or a premium cable or pay-per-view might be interested in those four, six, and eight round fights. But for the most part, those level of fights are simply additional investment by the promoter. It's one thing when, when a fighter finally gets to the level where they're an A-side, a champion, you know, they're starting to generate real money. They have to expect that the promoter's entitled for, for some number of fights to make a nice per, you know, chunk of money because some of it is simply repayment. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, you know, you don't get all your money back as a promoter necessarily in one fight when your fighters, you know, risen to a certain level. Um, but after the promoter sort of recouped his investment and you have a real star fighter, then it's appropriate in my view that there's transparency because as Matt said, you know, $1.6 million is a lot of money for, you know, uh, uh, you know, four, 36 uh, minutes of fighting. Um, however, if there's 10 million in the pot, it's shit money. Mm. No, exactly. And, and, and so what I'm saying is, like, let, and, and I'm generalizing here, so don't hold me to the, the figures or anything, but let's say Frank, Frank's model was where he's, you know, very generous early doors when you're four, you're six rounds, eight rounds. Like you say, he's overpaying you, he's investing, but he's holding all the cards. So when you're up world champion, you're doing the arenas, you know, Frank's thinking, well, I've invested for three years. I, I don't think an 80-20 split is fair because I want to recoup my investment. And that's understandable. But at what point then does it go to an 80-20 split and an open book? So I know Eddie Hearn, I, you know, again, don't hold me to the 80-20, but it's basically an open book. It's transparent. You own the show. And he takes a, he takes a, a small piece of the pie for, for, his, for promoting the show. Now, with that model... There's longevity in the relationship because it's transparent. You're getting paid what's been generated. It's fair. But I can tell you now, I wasn't complaining when I was getting overpaid for those six rounders. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I was happy to get that money. I wouldn't want it to. And if someone had offered me half that money, I'd have been like, what? I'm not fighting for that when Frank Warren's paying me this. But then, you know, so this, I suppose that's where you need a manager that's fair and that understands it and that can explain it to the, the fighter who, and the fighter trusts the manager and he can explain to him, well, listen, you know, you got overpaid here. So, you know, at this point, 
it's a 50-50 split, let's say. And, but down the line, it'll be 60-40, 70-30. And eventually, it'll be 80-20 once he's recouped his investment. You're, but, you know, there's... Matt, your point, your point right there about the manager is also a key point. Um, you know, people's into... Often you, they think, okay, my, I want my manager to squeeze the last cent for me. I want him to be a shark. I want him to be up the promoter's ass and be a fucking asshole. Um, I want to know that, that, but that's, you know, you, that's not necessarily what you really want. What you want is a, is a manager that truly understands the business, that, that has a fiduciary duty to you, meaning that manager is exercising everything he's doing is because he has a duty to maximize the money you're making. And you don't maximize your fighter's money by being unrealistic. You blow deals. You can be a huge impediment to making a deal. You need a manager that understands the business well enough to explain to you, this is what's there. This is why we're doing this deal. And this is why it's fair or unfair to you. And, and if you get that degree of mutual trust, you have the right manager. And if that manager has, look, there are managers that have been uh, thorns in my side, but I, I, I regard very highly and and believe are truly good representatives of their fighters you know it's not for a manager to try to be my good friend it's for the manager to try to get the best deal for his fighter but the guys that are overzealous that blow deals that are unrealistic that you know there are an awful lot of managers that shouldn't be anywhere near managing and and they're they they the the way some of these managers opportunistic managers get their position is to undermine the management that was previously there. Oh, you're getting ripped off. You're not getting enough money, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes maybe that's the reality, but often it's just the next person you meet diminishing the last guy that's been with you. And, you know, I've always been like, I, I sometimes get disappointed when I see, you know, look, disloyalty is par for the course in boxing. It just is. And by, by the way, I'm not blaming any individual element of the sport or, or player in the sport. I'm not blaming promoters for the lack of loyalty or managers for the lack of loyalty or fighters for the lack of loyalty. But boxing is a very difficult, dirty, and unforgiving business. And as a result of those elements, the dirty, the unforgiving, the difficult, um, there's a lot of, of distrust suspicion often for good reason often not but the, the thing i would you know i i get disappointed sometimes when i see managers that i know have done incredible work on behalf of their their fighter um get thrown to the side because somebody some wise ass that has a cup of coffee in the industry that knows nothing about boxing convinced them that they're bigger than they there actually are or that the pie is larger than it actually is you know managers right now that are holding out for pre-pandemic money when their fighters are begging to fight aren't necessarily doing right by their client you know well they're getting because... left on the what they're getting Sorry. left on the shelf they're not fighting because they're demanding too much and it's not there look i i, I I'm happy to have conversations with my fighters as the promoter with the fighter and the manager. And they say, Hey Lou, we're at this stage of our career. I don't want to take less money right now. 
I'd rather sit. This is uncomfortable for me this time. Look, I wouldn't want to fight in front of no one. I wouldn't want to go to a bubble. It's unpleasant. And, 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 you know, there are fighters that do need to fight and, and I, and, but, but getting into the ring for less than your worth when you're not at a hundred percent because of everything going on in the world, it's a personal decision. But the idea that, if, you know, the, the, the fight and look, a, a, a Bud Crawford who's made $3 million a fight for a while is in a position where he can say, guess what? If I'm not making $3 million a fight. I don't want to fight. So I'll wait till this is over. That's a per- perfectly fine decision, you know. But um, the expectation that the, the promoter can pay the fighter the same money when he can't sell any tickets is not realistic. And, and I think so, that's a word, Lou, expectation. I think a good manager can manage the expectations of his fighter. And he has, he, well, that's what he has to manage the expectations. He has to educate him and explain to him. That money isn't there anymore. This is what's here. This is why it's there. And this, if you don't fight, you don't have to fight, but I'm advising you as your manager that that's a good deal. And if you don't take it, someone else will. And that's, and that's what's happening. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. The key to good managing is communication. And I would also argue, frankly, you know, the key to good promoting is also communication. You know, it's, 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 it's trying to explain this is why we are where we are. Now, I, I can tell you that as like, like a, just an illustration of something. I promote a lot of female fighters. It's been complete death for an boxing in, the, in North America this pandemic. I mean, there's no, other than Michaela Mayer that has an ESPN deal who's fought a couple of times, women aren't fighting. But it's very frustrating if you're women and you're watching shows start to go on and you can't fight and you're sitting there and you're angry at the world and you're angry at your promoter and you're angry that there isn't fairness. But there wasn't fairness before a pandemic and and the pandemic has made everything worse. So, like, I empathize with all these ladies that are unable to fight and are incredibly frustrated. Um, I can try to communicate with them uh, as honestly as I can, but I can't change the world, you know, and, and, uh, and I can't make a platform pay for boxing. And in the absence of a platform paying for boxing, I can't go into my own pocket to buy. I can't, I'm not allowed to do shows. So what am I supposed to do? Take a, a, a whole roster of fighters and out of my go break into my uh, retirement savings and and buy fights onto cards in states that have no regulation, so that you know I, I can't afford to do that. So you know you're you know sometimes being honest and tr- transparent um, can work against you. Sometimes also, by the way, your promoter or your manager believes. A certain route is 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 is, is going to be taken, and then the platform 
the network, uh, the streaming service changes its mind or changes its business model. You know, there's no question right now that the zone has changed its orientation. Um, and, and, and right now is much more of a global service and, and very much, uh, interested in building subscribership in, in the UK, Europe, the, the you know, Australia, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the far East, um, they become a global service and maybe a little bit less orientated toward the United States, you know, as, you know, less U.S. centric. People and networks change their their minds. Budgets have changed substantially. You know, HBO went from being the biggest paycheck in the business when you were fighting in the, in the States, you know, Matt. I mean, HBO was the 800-pound gorilla. HBO's out of boxing. You know, Showtime's budgets are not the same as they once were, and players are. Ch- and right now, there's a readjustment going on in terms of purses and license fees from the Zone and 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 uh, and Showtime and ESPN because of what's going on in the world, and 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 also because you know it's a it's an interesting thing. As I said earlier, all this money was being spent by these different avenues, let's call them avenues, uh, platforms, but avenues in boxing. But the sport really wasn't getting bigger and the results didn't match the money being spent. So what's happening now? There's a readjustment down, downward. And that's pretty much going on across the universe of boxing. So in terms of, in terms of trying to make fights, when fighters think the market value is, let's say, 10 pounds and now you're telling them it's only five pounds or five dollars that they think they're being had over they think they're being robbed they don't want to fight for that money because they think that's poor money but actually it's really just a reset uh, yeah it's a reset but 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 it's also it, it's even it's, it's it's a reset um but it also goes to expectations uh, you 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 know you you said earlier that's an important word i'll give you an illustration when I go online and I see Crawford and Spence going back and forth, or I see Haney going back and forth with uh, Tiafimo or whoever, and they're all throwing out these numbers, where are those numbers coming from? You know, unless like in, in order for, for two fighters to make $10 million each, the right now there are no crowds and, $10 million each, $20 million plus the expense of the rest of the card, plus, you know, uh, travel and hotels and everything else you have to do. Um, you need an awful lot of pay-per-view buys to generate $30 million, which would be the cost of that level of kind of card. And $30 million is a million homes at $59.95 U.S., split 50 50 with the industry so in other words the promoter side of the equation would be on a 59.95 retail price call it 30 it could be 35 but call it 30 million dollars you and i know crawford and spence isn't doing a million homes Hmm. and in fact if crawford and spence did half a million homes it would be sensational performance in my view when you start seeing fighters and, and then, by the way, look, look at the expectations online of the guys like Devin Haney, who who is 
been built on the zone and has had some nice fights and Eddie's done a good job, you know, developing him, but there's a limited audience on a streaming service. So for Devin Haney to think, okay, I'm going to make gazillions of dollars to fight uh, Ryan Garcia right now. No, not necessarily, you know, and, and when you see fighters talking about crazy numbers, you could almost assume the fight's not going to happen. Yeah, that, that's that's something I always take away from those kinds of discussions. And also when you see them arguing ad infinitum about who is the A-side uh, and one fighter saying, it must be 60-40 my way, and the other saying, no, it must be 60-40 my way. When you've got a truly big fight, surely the first thing that everybody involved has got to realise is that if, if there's any chance of this happening, it's going to need to be 50-50. Is, is that the start? Well, you know, look, you, 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 there are creative things that can be done. There are also situations where you got to be realistic. It's not going to be 50-50. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there, there are situations where an A-side is a strong enough draw. I mean, Canelo Alvarez is never going to have a 50-50 fight until uh, – while he's still sitting on the throne of number one pound for pound, which is where I have him right now. And I, I don't think he's ever been better in the ring, nor do I think he's ever been more dominant um, as a personality slash fighter in the industry. Anyone who goes in thinking that they're automatically entitled to make 10 times what they've ever made before out of Canelo's pocket is crazy. And Canelo will never have a 50-50 fight. But if you're a Spence and a Crawford, you got to think that that's a 50-50 fight. And and if, if you don't want it to be a 50-50 fight, then make it about who's better. So take 10% of the money or take 25% of the money and give it to the winner and whack up the rest of the money 50-50. I mean, if Spence thinks he's that dominant and he's going to beat the shit out of Crawford and Crawford thinks he's, he's the A-side because he's going to beat the shit out of Spence, let him prove it. Mm. And go 50-50 and then set some sum of money at the top for the winner. But but it's silly for those two guys to be arguing about who's the A side. Because I would argue they're co-A sides until mm. one beats the other. And neither one of them, yeah, Spence has more of a track record of pay-per-view than than uh than Crawford does, but I think it's largely irrelevant because neither one of them has ever done a half million homes or 350,000, 400,000 homes. They, they, they've done less, you know, and they haven't been in the major. I mean, the, the Crawford Spence pay-per-view will be the biggest pay-per-view if it happens that either one of those guys has ever been in. Now, based upon the, everything I've seen and read, at the moment, I think it's highly unlikely that that fight will happen. How does that and, fight happen? Not right now. I, I, I could see it maybe. I think there's an increased chance that it happens. If Crawford, when his contract runs out, uh, crosses the street, you know, I mean, Spence and Crawford are two of the guys that have been very aware of that concept of my side of the street. Um, you know, if, if, if they both get on the same side of the street, it makes it easier for the fight to happen. That's why Joshua Wilder would have happened instead of Fury for a lot more money in Deontay's pocket than he made for the Fury fights had, had there been a deal accepted at the zone because Joshua and Wilder would have been on the quote-unquote the same side of the street at the moment in time that the fight was bigger than it ever would have been. 
Matt, just to touch on the the um, equation that Lou mentioned there, which is one that gets mentioned quite a lot, which is the idea that the winner makes more money, that you basically strike a deal whereby, you know, if you win the fight, then 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 you make the 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 greater percentage. This is kind of bandied around quite often as being a as being a a good solution when you've got deadlock, and I think it is a good solution. It seems to make total sense. But it basically never happens, does it? Like from a yeah, because no one has because people talk a good game and then ultimately don't have the cuyones. Yeah, exactly. That's really what it is. You know, you put your money where your mouth is, type thing. If you really believe one hundred percent that you're going to win, then why wouldn't you go for the the win bonus, so to speak? You know, you take a lesser purse. You put you you both shave you shave off a little bit and you put that there for the winner. If you really believe you're going to win, then why wouldn't you do that? Well, part of the reason why it's not only you that has to believe you're going to win. To, to, it's your manager that has to believe you're going to win. It's your promoter that has to believe you're going to win. And even more overriding, it's your platform, particularly if you're a superstar that believes you're going to... You, well, the platform cares less because, if the honestly, if the fighter and the promoter are on board, the platform just cares about how much they're paying. I don't think they particularly care how, about how it's getting chopped up. But, but, but it has to be the whole team believing in the fighter. But I mean, it's the, it, it is the solution to the, you know, when there's, there's a stalemate and there's no one's given an inch, that kind of does, that does solve it, doesn't it? And, and by the way, you know what's infuriating? And I'm sure you've seen, because I know you guys are on social media, you follow what Scuttlebutt is on social media. How often now you see fans jumping into arguments over who should get more money. The fuck out of here. <laughs> you want to see a good fight, right? That's what you want to see. Shut the fuck up. You don't know anything. You know, it's, bad enough when, it's bad enough the boxers becoming businessmen, not, not the fans as well. Now you got to deal with you got to deal with the fucking a million a holes trolling on social media, telling me how, how how a deal is made. The fuck out of here! I mean, honestly. Actually, that that was something I was going to come on to in a bit, but we may as well do it now. One thing that has definitely changed over the last ten years since the introduction of social media is that negotiations seem to get played out a lot more in, in public. Um, realistically. Yeah, but they're really not. I'm actually, they're but, really not. But that, when, that, when it's, when it seems to be playing out in public, it's not playing out. Like if, if you're reading back and forth from Eddie and Frank and, and all of, no, it's not, that's not a, a negotiation occurring. It's when you're not hearing the shit, when you know, people are talking, but you're not hearing every little thing. That's when a fight's about to happen. And social media is actually, when people start negotiating through social media, it's an impediment to making a deal. Where social media can be very useful, however, is in building a fight up between fighters. You know, the I, I like a good beef between fighters on social media. I don't like it when they're discussing money and arguing about who's worth how many millions of dollars more or who has better sneakers or a better car. I don't like reading that shit, but... But I do like when a guy goes, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And the other guy goes, okay, we'll bring it. Let's, and they go back and forth. And often that can capture the imagination of fans. And that can be helpful to a fight eventually happening. I have been involved in numerous fights that, that began by fighters going back and forth on social media. Um, but when a negotiation appears to be, to be conducted on social media, count on the fact it's not really a negotiation. 
really what's happening then is that the negotiations gone wrong and everyone's just there in their laundry. You know, their, everyone, their everyone's trying to get their positions uh, supported and, and people are more entrenched in their own point of view. That's when they start arguing with each other on social media. When a deal is real, like right now, I think it's really to fans. I think it should be somewhat reassuring that you're not seeing bickering between Fury and the Joshua camps on social media. That says to me, there's a good chance this fight will happen. That's one of the reasons I told you earlier, I'm very optimistic. If you follow my, if you follow, if people who follow me on social media over the years know how often I've made fun of a lot of pronouncements that, you know, over the last five years that Wilder, uh, you know, Wilder and Fury was done, Wilder and Joshua was done, Joshua and Fury was done. And I've always been out there laughing, saying, bullshit, nothing's done. You're full of shit. You're just, you know, great job doing a little grandstanding, but you're not in a negotiation. Now I see it's different. Now I believe everyone involved wants to make a fight and you're not seeing inane bickering. You know, you're not seeing people attack one another uh, in new services about how poorly people are negotiating. You're not seeing name calling with the other guy's manager being called Shirley. You're not seeing that kind of stuff right now. You know? Well, I do remember um, when all this started, um, I think it was Eddie who said that a deal had been agreed in principle. And that kind of made me laugh because you just thought, well, what, what has uh, at that point, clearly nothing whatsoever had been, had been agreed, but I'm going to be be cute on that one. What does principle have to do with boxing? (laughs) <laughs> Nothing's in principle in boxing. In principle, you know. And you know, Don King once said, and this is a great, a great, great, great quote about how boxing deals sometimes turn. Don King once said, "When the contract is signed, that's when the negotiation begins." <laughs> well, let's let let's get on to that kind of thing. I was, then, I was because... just going to say, I was just going to say. It, it's bad enough when you got to sign contracts. Never mind when you just got one in principle. <laughs> exactly. Well, let, let's, principle, my let, ass. No. Well, let, let's get on to some some good old fashioned shit housery then, because I'm sure that plenty of that goes on when 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 deals are being done when they have been done. Uh, and I mentioned at the start that you know you can have you could probably um, have absolute headaches over, for example, is it going to be Fury against Joshua or Joshua versus Fury? You know that that's going to matter to those two probably. I have. I mean, again, I can't at the at the moment recall what fight it was, but I do recall in my HBO days a fight falling apart on that very issue, and the promoters begging the fighters to whatever, and they simply couldn't agree. In fact, there was the fight. No, actually, I do remember. I don't remember who it was yet. I remember that we actually eventually solved the problem by having two sets of materials and two commercials. And one commercial had the fight, each fighter's name first as the A-side, and one set of materials did it the same way. The other set of materials was flipped. And that's happened on a number of occasions. But some of the stupidest shit of all time, I mean, you know, I'll tell a little story, and it's about a guy that I know you guys know, I think, and it's a friend of mine. I used to promote him also, uh, Sergio Mora. When, when Sergio Mora, after he won the contender, I was promoting Jermaine Taylor when Jermaine was the undefeated superstar for the, that period of time that he was. And um, we made a fight with Sergio, who had won the contender. We were trying to make a fight with Sergio. And 
And Sergio was offered a tremendous amount of money um, at the time, I thought. And at the time, I don't know if people were whispering in his ear or what it was, but he didn't think it was enough. And, and I remember calling him. Literally, I got the permission of, of, of the people who were promoting him at the contender to call him directly. I remember calling him at the time and saying, you're making a big mistake. Like, you're getting way more than you would ever get as a mandatory situation. And, you know, it's, it's not very common to get seven hundred or $750,000 paydays. This was years and years ago. I mean, I'm talking about this is in the early 2000s, mid to you know. 2005, 2009, remember, 2004, 5, 6 in that area. Um, I think Sergio now laughs about it and sort of regrets it, knows he made a bad decision, but but uh, he passed on the money that was there. And then I don't and then I, and then it took a long, long time for him ever to get again into that realm of money. Now he did. And by the way, I wound up actually at the end of his career, I'm proud to say that I promoted Sergio, who's a great guy and a, a ter- was a terrifically talented boxer. Um, but, but it's easy also to make a mistake. And I look at the careers now of Spence and Crawford and where they're going from here. And I hope they don't make bad mistake because I think it would be a shame if that fight doesn't happen when they're both at the top of their game and, and, uh, where they are right now, when they're both undefeated superstars. I think that it'd be a shame that that fight not happen. Yeah, totally agree. Luke. That, that's, that's the, I mean, at the start of this year, Fury AJ aside, that was the fight that I hope happens. It, you know, it, it, and and that's the fight that I think they should get creative about winner taking more money or how to figure out how to make it happen because neither one. I, and I mean this, and I don't mean this in you know. I speak my mind that I don't want to offend people, but like neither one of those guys is as big as they think they are. But if they want to be as big as their talent is, if they want to be superstars and legitimate draws on pay-per-view or draws at the gate, what better way than to fight the biggest fight possible and win? You know? And by the way, if they fight and it's sensational, it's going to happen three times in all likelihood. You know, at least twice. So, you know, I, I, I hope that that's the kind of fight that I hope things get cleared up. You know, and then also, like, I look at stuff now, like, you know, they've been kicking around Manny Pacquiao and Ryan Garcia. The more I think about that fight, the more I love it. Like, I love it because it's the ultimate crossroads roads fight. You know, a guy in Manny who's the, who's a, a, a sitting senator in, in, in Filipino politics, who's one of the, you know, very wealthy people in the Philippines and a legend, uh, uh, a whole, uh, you know, I mean, he, he, they should put him in the hall of fame the day after he retires, uh, against a kid who has incredible star power that some people think it's too early for the fight, but, but the kid believes he can win. See that kind of fight. That's, that's more of a fight that people threw up in the air and no one expected to hear about it. But now that I've heard about that fight, I want to see it. Like, that's what I'd like to see. That's a lot more interesting to me than Mikey Garcia and and Pacquiao, you know, because it's such an interesting matchup of a guy on the rise and the king who's sitting at the top of the mountain, but in his last days of his reign. Because Manny doesn't have, you know, a long time left. I don't think he wants 
to be doing this for that much longer. But he's, you know, he's certainly in the twilight of an astonishingly great career. Just just one last one on the kind of dynamic or, or minutiae, if you like, of of a Crawford Spence or a, or a Fury Joshua. Fury Joshua. Would there always be, are those kinds of fights always going to be at least, always going to be two fight deals because there'll be a rematch, whatever happens? Not always, you know, and, and um, you know, and obviously it looks like Wilder Fury 3 is not going to happen, but Wilder Fury 2 was so definitive that I don't think there are a lot of people losing sleep that Wilder Fury 3 isn't happening or Fury Wilder 3 isn't happening. Let me be more correct. Fury Wilder 3 isn't happening. Um, you know, I, I thought the first fight, I thought the draw was appropriate. Honestly, I, I didn't think it was a, a, a clear win for Fury. I thought when, you, when you're when you almost knocked the kingdom come, you have to understand that maybe you're going to get a draw or lose. Um, and he was almost knocked the kingdom come twice in that fight. Um, but, but the second fight was so one-sided. It was such a, a definitive clear ass whooping that you know i i don't think it's the worst thing in the world and i think most fans don't think it's the worst thing in the world that we're not getting that fight and i think that the nature of fury wilder 2 wilder fury 2 was such that it created more of a momentum toward fury and aj and by the way one thing i want to give fury and aj credit for is they can have their own opinions but I don't see inane chatter between the two of them about who's going to be the A side. No, you know? that's true. They, that's true. They, 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 as you said, when things go quiet, then you, you're confident that, that things are actually happening. And both of those two, I think they did have an actual conversation, the two of them on the phone, and, and they won't have agreed anything concrete, but there obviously is a will there that they both want it. And they both realize that that now is absolutely the, the time to do it. Um, with regard to to Wilder, we talked a couple of days ago, me and Matt, about about the situation with him and, and Mark Breland, which has kind of blown up over the last week because um, uh, Mark was on a UK podcast with Spencer Fear and Atundia Jay and for the first time kind of really said quite a lot um, in reply to what Deontay had been talking about. And, and Deontay Wilder's come back and and reply to that. I mean, it's, uh, as Matt put it the other day, it's never great when dirty laundry gets aired in, aired in public. <laughs> yeah, but happy- you know what? I, I hear what you're saying, but you know something? I don't view what Mark's done the last couple of weeks as airing dirty laundry. Uh, you know, people, like Mark's a friend of mine for a long, long time. I mean, we, you know, we're both Brooklyn guys. I've known him since he's a kid. I mean, well, I say I've known him because kid. When I when I first met him, we were both kids. You know what I mean? I'm not that much older than than, than Breland. Um, Mark's a terrific guy, and, and but he's a very proud, strong man. And and people now, you know, Mark's had health issues. He's very soft spoken. He looks a little bit frail, and pe- people don't understand. He's still he's still a champion. He's still a very strong, proud man. When someone accuses you of horrendous actions that are completely ridiculous and untrue, fighting for your personal reputation and speaking your mind isn't airing dirty laundry. It's being a man. It's being a man. And, and you know, I haven't taken pot shots at Deontay since our relationship ended. 
And for a very simple reason. I, the only reason I worked with Deontay for a number of years is because Deontay put me in that position. And, and yeah, I didn't like the way things ended, but I'm grateful for the time we spent together and things, things end, you know? So I, I, I've, I've really made an effort. I, I've told stories that have been the truth and, and my, and, and, and spoken a little bit of my truth, but you haven't seen me out there denigrating Deontay Wilder. Not something I would do. But you did see me within 24 hours of the of the uh, the, the Fury Wilder fight number two coming to the defense of Mark Breland because I I was worried for Deontay's life watching the last couple of rounds of that fight bleeding from the ears uh, looking like, like like I mean literally I was concerned that he could he could suffer permanent damage and I thought that the most responsible caring decent act I saw in the ring that night was Breland throwing in the towel in effect. And then immediately to watch people yelling at him in the corner, I was aghast. I really was. So, you know, I, 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 I've been consistent in my support of Mark since the night of that fight. I have, I, I haven't denigrated Deontay. I, I, unfortunately, I think Deontay's done himself a lot of harm with the stuff that's come out of his own mouth. But it's not for me to sit there and 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 uh, point fingers at him or attack him. Uh, I, I am grateful for the years we worked together. By the way, Lou, me and Andy are in exactly that frame of mind. Maybe airing the, you know, your dirty laundry probably is a bad analogy. But I think, you know, just it's a shame when things go public, when fallouts go public. But you're right, Mark Breland was just standing his ground. He was the one who was, whose character was attacked. And without, I don't think anyone can argue he did the right thing in pulling... Wilder out, he saved him for another day. I think that that Mark could have taken another route that he hasn't taken. He hasn't hired a lawyer and sued Deontay and his team. Well, really Deontay, because he, he couldn't sue the team. It was Deontay who did most of the talking. But clearly, Mark Breland would have a legal action if he wanted to. I don't think Mark is looking to make things as miserable as possible. I think Mark just got fed up with reading mm-hmm. and hearing nonsense and, and the continuing... You know, you know, there are factions. You said the sport's never been so factionalized. You said that earlier, and I agree with you. And there are a lot of people that have continued to, you know, Marx had to read and hear and see interview after interview and comment after comment that it continues to cause, you know, to call his character into question. What do you expect the man's going to do? You know, you're going to fight for your reputation. You're going to, you're going to eventually want to prove that, that, you know, you're not a straight, you know, you're not someone afraid to stand behind yourself. Yeah, I completely, completely agree with that. He got a long time without really dignifying any of it with a response. And then at some point it was, it was bound to happen. Uh, everybody has their, has their limit. And, and by the way, Deontay was completely entitled to say, I'm changing trainers. I mean, if, if, if that, if that drama didn't happen in the corner, and a month later, quietly, Breland was let go as a trainer because Deontay felt like the, the, the match wasn't working, he wasn't getting better, whatever. Fighters are entitled to change their trainers. But you're not entitled to accuse a man of drugging your water. You're not entitled to, to lie about someone's character and, and, and ac- actions. That's not okay. And when you do that, all bets are off. So 
just before we before we let you go, as you said earlier on, you've been at this 31 years now. And as I referenced at the very start, um, you are a graduate of, of Harvard Law, as is Mr. Bob Arum. There aren't, there aren't too many. As is Mr. Al Heyman. Well, actually, Al's not a graduate of Harvard Law. Al's a graduate of Harvard Business. But it's almost the same thing. So that's 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 a br- that's a bright shiny ticket that you can you could have got punched and gone into a shall we say a more normal job than the one that you chose to take. I mean, the legal profession. My, my old man was in it for for, for years, and it, it is an interesting one. There's no there's no two ways about that. It is not dull. But do you sometimes think to yourself, what on earth made me? What made me do this and what made me stay in this for, for, for so long? Because as intoxicating as it is, uh, and I, I'm, I'm absolutely addicted to it, um, the amount of headaches it can, it can throw up if you're in your side of it. Um, it well, you know what it is? You know what it is? It's a drug. It's like a drug and you're addicted to the drug. It's also like a disease and you can't defeat the disease. <laughs> it's that weird combination. And, and, um, I, you know, I love that. I've never heard anyone describe it as a disease before, but that's that's absolutely no, it really true. Is. Well, well, well I'm, I can honestly but, but, say to I'm, be, to I'm, be, I'm well and truly infected. <laughs> <laughs> Look, to be to be honest, there were moments in time um, when I left HBO in in 2000, right before I left HBO, like weeks before the Twin Towers collapsed, uh, the attack on the Twin Towers. Um, there was a little bit, bit of a period of time where I thought about. Maybe it's I could redirect my life. Maybe I've I've already done something good in boxing and and, and redirect my life. I never questioned why I got into boxing because Muhammad Ali was my hero, my idol. Um, baseball and boxing, since I I could walk, were the two sports I was raised on. My uh, grandparents were Italian immigrants, and and when they, they they adopted baseball when they got here, but the sport they brought with them, you know, you couldn't watch soccer on US TV when I was a kid, but you could watch boxing. So my grandfathers turned me on to boxing when I was barely could walk. So I, my love for boxing had been there since I was a little child. So it's not, I mean, I know why I got into it, why I stayed 31 years. I'm not so cool. I mean, it's that, that's where the debate comes in. And there were other moments in time that were just a lot darker for me when Levander Johnson died, when, when Patrick Day died. Um, in both those situations, I had a, a week or two afterward of real, soul searching. And, and, and now to some degree, I turned 60 during this pandemic. I, I, I think of myself as the 30 to 20 something year old guy that started his HBO. I've never thought of myself as a 60 year old man until I fucking am now. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and now, and, and now that I am, um, I'll be honest with you because like, I don't, I, maybe I could have one more redirection of my career in my life right now. But in reality, I've, I've run, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm in the Hall of Fame. I, I, I'm doing this for 31 years. Um, I've been on multiple sides of boxing, from from the television side to being a promoter. Um, you can't retire, man. You're, you're, you're a part of boxing now. You are Mr. New York Boxing. Do you know what I mean? Like you say, yeah. I mean, I'm not. Boxing. I'm not planning on retiring. I, I have no. I have no imminent plan to, to to retire. But I'll tell you this, and 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 hold me to this, gentlemen. Hold me to this. I will not be. Bob Aram or Don King pushing 90 and still out there, you know, hustling. That will not be me. I will be long gone. God willing, I won't be dead, but I will be long gone before I'm 89 years old. 
I bet you're not, Lou. I bet you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope we're both both around to have a Guinness and laugh about that. But I'll tell you what, my, my other concern, my other concern is if I stay in this much longer, I'm going to fall over, you know, and I'm never going to make it to 89. I mean, the constitution of Aram and King to still be, I mean, Don King just pulled some Don King shit a week or two ago. The man's 89 <laughs> years old, you know, that's remarkable. And, uh, uh, and Aram's uh, a force of nature. You know, I think the weed is helping Aram, but he's a yeah. force of nature. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, did that? Yes, absolutely. With 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 King, I mean, it's 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 it, it kind of melted into the background a little bit, as much as somebody like him ever can. But it got a lot quieter, and then yes, that 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 WBA shenanigans a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it was absolutely world class. I can't I can't think of. It, it, it was on one hand, it was on one hand, it was horrendous. On the other hand, it was fucking wonderful. You know what I mean? <laughs> to watch to watch Don being Don at eighty nine years old. I like, you know, it, 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 still, it made me, it made me smile. <laughs> it made me smile. Yeah. It was, Gentlemen, it was I got to get on, I got to get on a call in two minutes. So it would, Matt, always a pleasure. Oh, I got to ask you this before I jump off. I have one minute. I love your first name. What's the, the background of it? What's that? Amarachi. Oh, mine. Oh, Amarachi. That, that's my wife's name. Um, she commented my, she's commented my Zoom account. Um, uh, she's really? Niger- yeah, she's Nigerian. So her, her maiden name was Amarachi Uzawuru. Um, I, I, I think I want to, I think, I think I want to, you know, name somebody Amarachi. It's wonderful. I mean, <laughs> it's great. It, it means God's one or blessed one in, um, in Igbo. E, the Igbos are from the South. Well, tell your wife, I think it's a wonderful name. Dick, Dick Tiger was an Ebo. Um, just to throw in a just throw in a boxing Dick Tiger, there for Dick you. Tiger was a great, great fighter. And actually, one of the early fights when I was a little child that got me interested in boxing was Nino Benvenuti against Dick Tiger, which was a sensational fight. If you ever get a chance to see a tape of it, it was a remarkable fight. Great being with you guys, Matt. Always a pleasure, uh, Mr. Clark. Nice to see you. <laughs> you Thanks, too, Luke. Thanks, Thanks so much, Lou. Thanks very Take much. Care. Okay, so Lou DeBella just uh, just checking out there, very generous with his time, and um, didn't quite have time to ask him for some Macklin highlights, but we'll definitely be getting him back. <laughs> I keep it rolling. I do this on purpose. I keep it rolling. Keep just run down the clock. <laughs> but it, it was it, it was just as much fun as we as we knew he would be. I mean, there are very few people around who know the boxing business quite as quite as well as he does. I mean, what well, I mean, one thing I would have asked him if if um, uh, if he hadn't had to go is, is you know him well and 31 years of boxing is a long time, particularly if you're the kind of personality who doesn't, he's, I mean, would I be right saying that he's quite, he's quite emotional. He wears his heart on his sleeve. And I, oh, think, yeah, definitely. I, I, I just think this business must be, I mean, maybe even tougher if you're, if you're that <laughs> way. Fired. If you're an emotional person, you'll be up and down like a fucking yo-yo. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, but we'll get him back. And, and hopefully before too long, we might run into him in person. We used to see him quite a bit um, over in the USA or here uh, before COVID circuits closing. So that, that wraps it up for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And just a reminder to the, about the kind of new setup. Nothing new about this. This is, this is coming out Tuesdays. It'll be in all the normal places. Um, but the podcasts bit by bit, kind of section by section. Uh, Darren 
uh, Reese, our producer, will be taking them over to the YouTube channel to provide more content. And then on Thursdays, we'll be doing our, our kind of Macklin's weekly news take, if you like, if, if, if we wanted to call it that, that'd be, that'd be fairly accurate. So we will be back next week. If you could get on and give us a rate and a review, uh, that would be splendid. Um, and have a, have a good week, everybody. Not that Maggie back in town. I said, Jenny Diver, whoa, Sookie Tawdry, look out to Miss Lottie Lynn, and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line forms on the right, babe. Not that Maggie. Back in Podcast Network.